0: It's Thursday, July 28, 2022. From New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, also around the clock for free on demand when the show is over on our podcast, guybensonshow.com for all of it, foxnewspodcast.com, one of your options for the podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, both. Programming note, because I'm not only political editor at townhall.com and host of this show, I also have TV duties here at Fox. And to that end, I'll be joining my friend Kennedy tonight in the 7 o'clock hour Eastern Fox Business Network. And then tomorrow, I'll be center seat or center of the couch on Outnumbered as hashtag one one lucky guy. That's on the news channel again midday tomorrow. On the radio... Here's the lineup for the day. Sarah Huckabee Sanders will be joining us, I believe, for the first time on the program. Later on this hour, she is running for governor of Arkansas. She is the Republican nominee down there, following in the footsteps of her father. Looking forward to having a conversation with her. Karl Rove will be here in the next hour. Always a very smart guy to talk to on all things politics. And Joe Concha on the media We'll round things out in the guest department in our final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern. Well, I mentioned, as I always do at the top, the date of this day. It is the 28th of July. We have been circling this date for a while because it was going to be the day on which the Labor Department released the second quarter GDP estimate. And if you haven't heard already... Here's a Fox News alert. We're in a recession. The traditional definition of recession, as we've been discussing for days, is back-to-back quarters of negative GDP growth, with the economy shrinking back-to-back quarters. And it shrank in quarter one, initially by 1.5%. Then it actually got worse in the revised estimate, down 1.6%. And it was unclear what was going to happen today. Some people thought it would be just barely positive growth, maybe floating around zero. But the number came in and it shrank by 0.9 percent, the U.S. economy. So that's consecutive quarters of an economic contraction in the United States of America. And that based on the dictionary definition, based on the longstanding political definition, right, based on the way that the media has covered the issue for decades, based on political parlance, all of it. You don't have to just look in the dictionary. It's how we discuss these issues. So rooted in all of that, this is a recession. And it is quite a thing to marvel at and to witness, watching so many people in the media who until just a few days ago would have just said, oh yeah, two uh, back-to-back quarters, Of negative growth, that's a recession, because the White House and the Democrats have decided that that's no longer the case, at least for this moment, you know, the second it happens under a Republican down the line at some point, there will be no hemming and hawing and like, oh, we need lots of context. And let's actually let's step back for a moment and think about the perspective here. That will all go away. If this were happening under the previous president, the headline tomorrow in all the papers would be Trump recession arrives, something like that. And yet, with the new doctrine being handed down just within the last week or two from, I guess, campaign headquarters at the White House or the tribal council has spoken for the left, that's not what we're doing because it's politically unhelpful. The way that the recession and this data point is being announced by a lot of the press is just amazing. Some are going out of their way not to use the word or to say, well, it's fueling concerns about a recession. Some might say, based on one definition, that this could be dot, dot, dot. There's all the hedging and asterisks, none of which would be happening under a Republican. It's just it's amazing the extent to which official Democrat talking points are adopted and saluted by so many journalists and so quickly and so blatantly. It's actually helpful how blatant it is. There's no subtlety to it. It's not like I have to really dig deep to try to convince you of something that sounds a little crazy. It's just happening right in front of our eyes, and they do it shamelessly. The Wall Street Journal, in their news article, played it pretty straight. Here's the lead today. Quote, the U.S. economy shrank for a second quarter in a row, a common definition of recession. As businesses trimmed their inventories, the housing market buckled under rising interest rates and high inflation took steam out of consumer spending. Gross domestic product, a broad measure of the goods and services produced across the economy, fell at an inflation and seasonally adjusted annual rate of 0.9% in the second quarter. This according to the Commerce Department. You've got from Commerce and Labor, these are the numbers. And this new data point follows a 1.6% pace of contraction in the first three months of 2022. The report indicated the economy met a commonly used definition of recession, two straight quarters of declining economic output. Correct. That's correct. Now, you can, if you're looking for nuance, make some nuanced points, and that's fine. And I won't just whine that the nuance would be obliterated and completely ignored under a Republican president. We all understand that. You know it. I know it. They know it. Everyone understands that that's the case. It's just a fact of life. I don't need to convince you. I don't need to build a strong case piece by piece It's just something that I think we all understand. And even people who would want to deny it in their heart of hearts know that it's true. So let me just put that piece off to the side. We'll revisit the media angle with Joe Concha probably later in the show, since he's the media maven. Let's talk about nuance, because I'm open to that. Is it true that the U.S. labor market is strong and the job growth has been good and the unemployment rate is low? Yes, Are those good signs that might suggest that the recession that we're in, at least right now, is not that deep or terrible? I mean, you've got terrible inflation, which is eating away at Americans' paychecks and savings and all of it. That's another huge problem that's related. But just looking at the recession itself, which we are in based on the definition, I'm not going to be gaslit out of that. Sorry. It's a recession. That's the definition. We met it. We might bounce out of it next quarter. That's the expectation of economists, that there'll be at least some growth in quarter three and quarter four. Fine. There are concerns that the recession would hit or hit harder next year in 2023. I think that's a very realistic possibility. The nuance is we've got a recession right now. The recession might yield. It might pull back. It might become growth at least for a quarter or two. Maybe it will double dip next year and get worse. Maybe the drastic steps that the Fed has to take to help fight and curb inflation that's been so brutal will deepen the problem and lead to a more painful recession. And some of the bright spots that people are pointing to at the moment will no longer be so bright or bright at all in the future, in the future, excuse me, like job growth, unemployment rate, whatever. Those things might come down. We don't know. I think that there are some warning signs out there, some red flags flapping in the breeze. Because generally when inflation is really tough, the tougher the inflation, and it's quite bad right now, what, 40-year highs across the board, to reverse that really problematic and painful trend, you have to inflict some pain. And the pain manifests itself, In the form of a recession. Larry Summers had said many times now, at this point, the former Obama secretary, this combination of factors, high inflation, low unemployment, virtually always results in recession. And really the debate is how bad is the current recession? Not does it exist? It exists. How bad is it? And will it get worse? Could it get a little bit better and then get worse? Could it continue to just decline? We'll find out. And there are going to be different factors at play, and it's, I think, perfectly fine to have that discussion, have that conversation. But we can't really be adults and engage in serious analysis if you've got half the political class trying to tell you that there is no recession at all, even though it's happened with this back-to-back economic contraction, which is the definition and as we mentioned on the show what was it yesterday or the day before the last 10 times that you had back to back quarters of negative economic growth a recession was declared you've got all these like these armchair economists all of a sudden on social media like they know what they're talking about They've never heard of the NBER ever before, but all of a sudden they're like experts on it. Like, oh, well, until that board formally declares a recession, uh, in retrospect, sometimes years later, it's not really a recession. You've never heard of this thing until yesterday because the Democrats told you to think about it. It's like, oh, here's just a talking point that got handed in front of you on the piece of paper. You just start reading from it. I'm not sitting here pretending to be an economist or an expert. We have people on the show as guests who fulfill that role for us. Like Steve Moore yesterday, like Dagan McDowell we've got tomorrow booked on the show. What I can tell you is what we have all agreed upon is the definition of a recession, which was a consensus until like four minutes ago. That definition has been met. And now we have a bunch of people, including the White House and the president himself, denying it. President Biden came out today and gave a statement about this Mansion schumer deal. Believe it or not, they want to raise spending and raise taxes in the middle of all of this. That's the Democrat plan. Oh, what a deal they've struck. We'll have much more on that later in the show. But at the very end of his remarks, Biden quickly made a comment about the recession About the GDP numbers. And I'll just play you a little tiny bit of it. Cut 22.
4: Both Chairman Powell and many of the uh, um, uh, significant uh, banking personnel and economists say we're not in a recession.
0: Okay, so many people are saying we're not in a recession. And he goes through some of the bright spots that I've already mentioned because I'm not a hack. And he mentions them with everything else in isolation. It's not like the bad stuff he didn't really want to talk about at all. So he ran through and he said, well, that doesn't sound like a recession to me. Thank you very much. And he just walked out of the room, no questions. So it's it's just actually pretty mind-blowing on literally the day that the recession becomes official. Based on the definition and the government's own numbers, Democrats announce a breakthrough. To spend hundreds of billions of dollars in new money that we don't have in the middle of inflation and to raise taxes in the middle of a recession that might get worse this year or next year. (laughs) It's like a cartoon version of what Democrats might do literally the same day within hours. Then the president comes out and gives a long talk about the big bargain that was forged to raise taxes and raise spending, and then gave just like a little quick comment at the very end saying, well, I don't believe there's a recession and some other people don't either. So it doesn't sound like a recession to me. Uh, Take care everyone. No
1: questions. Thank you. You're welcome. It's, it's amazing. Biden
0: said that he was quoted by, I believe it was Reuters saying that he thinks the U.S. economy is, quote, on the right path. On the right path. We have 40-year highs on inflation and a recession. And the president decided that what he needs to say about it is almost nothing. Deny that it's a recession and tell us that we're on the right path. Something, by the way, that... Only about 15 to 20 percent of the country actually agrees with. You'd imagine they're almost all well-to-do Democrats. And then just the piece de resistance from the press secretary at the White House, who's just fantastic, does a bang-up job every day. Here's how she was talking about the issue in Cut 24
2: What we're seeing is that we are in a transition. We had this strong economic growth because of the of the work that this president has done in the past 18 months. And
1: now what we're seeing is a transition into stable and steady growth.
0: No, no, we don't have stable and steady growth right now because we have shrinking. GDP, that's not growth. It's negative growth. It's contraction. But she used that word trans- uh, transition twice. We're in a transition. We're seeing a transition. It's almost as if they're calling it, what's the word I'm looking a transitory? Have we heard that before? Gosh, these people have not only a messaging problem, but also a reality problem. They've got both in spades. They can deny. They can gaslight. Reality is what it is. And that's what you're going to get on this show, The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back.
3: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: I'm Guy Benson. Here's how the Associated Press covered the news today of the recession. Breaking. The U.S. economy shrank for a second straight quarter, raising fears that the nation may be approaching a recession. Which is not the definition, including the definition used by the Associated Press many times in the past, over and over again. I love it when the journalists, like the journo class, they just angrily insist Oh, we don't root for a team. We're not on one side or the other. Who us? Absolutely not. We're here just to tell the truth. We're firefighters or whatever. Then the Democrats put out the bat signal of whatever the latest talking point is, and you have, like, all the major newspapers, wire services, and, you know, other news networks, and the White House and the congressional Democrats just all of a sudden start singing in this beautiful seven-part harmony. It's the exact same song. Well, the de- the, de- the definition of recession maybe is not. Qu- let's let's think this through. Let's let's add some context. Actually, come to think of it, we only thought of it because that's what the White House asked us to do, and so we're going to do it, and we're all on the same team. But don't you dare accuse us of that. Someone not playing the game is our colleague Peter Ducey. He was back and forth with KJP yesterday on this cut six.
2: If things are going so great, though, then why is it the White House officials are trying to redefine recession? No, we're not redefining recession. If we all understand a recession to be two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth in a row, and then you have White House officials come up here to say, no, 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 that's not what a recession is. It's something else. How is that not redefining recession? Because that's not the definition. That is not the definition.
0: But when you ask her for the definition, what is the definition? She says, oh, well, uh, we won't provide that for you. I, I, I don't have anything for you. So the definition that we've all used forever is not the definition. Okay, fine. What's your definition? Uh, well, that's not our job either. Woo! And round and round we go. Just Calvin ball from these people. Economy's on the right path. It's just a transition, they say. All right. Look around you. We know the reality
4: here.
3: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: From New York City this week, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast every day. And we welcome now to the show Sarah Huckabee Sanders, former White House press secretary and the Republican nominee for governor in the state of Arkansas. And Sarah, great to have you here.
1: Thanks so much, Scott. Good to be with you.
0: I have so much to ask you about. I want to start with just the news of the day. A recession has arrived, back-to-back quarters of negative growth for the United States economy, that on top of all the decade-high numbers on inflation. When you're traveling around Arkansas talking to voters and people you hope will be soon, your constituents, what are you hearing from Arkansans on these issues, how it's affecting them? Because here in D.C. and New York, there's a lot of game playing around, you know, words and definitions and rhetoric. What's the reality like in your state?
1: Uh, Look, the reality is that people are hurting and no matter what they want to call it, um, you know, they are the same group of people that said there's no inflation. And now they're saying there's there's no recession. Um, They're also the same group of people that said men can can get pregnant and the border secure and the Afghanistan withdrawal was a success, but people are smarter than Democrats are giving them credit for, and they feel the impact of the bad decisions that have been made uh, under this very uh, strongly Democrat-led Congress and administration, and when they continue to push bad policy, frankly, it's pretty simple, bad things happen and the American people are feeling it. We certainly hear it everywhere we go in Arkansas. When people go to fill up their cars, when they go to the grocery store, they're feeling the impact of these bad policies, um, and they don't like it. And I think it's one of the big reasons you're gonna see a huge shift. And um, the environment right now is really bad for Democrats, and hopefully will result in a big red wave in November, which I certainly think is you know, what to be expected.
0: I have to ask you this, just putting on your hat for a moment as the former White House press secretary. It feels like just a few days ago that top Democrats and this administration started to basically inform the media that even if the definition of recession were to be met today, which it was, the back-to-back quarters of negative growth in the U.S. GDP number, even if that were to be the case, it's not really a recession because that's not technically the definition and it's a broader metric and you really have to wait longer and they don't believe that it really fits or whatever. That was the talking point that they started putting out just very recently and instantly. Much of the media just stood up and saluted, and even when the news arrived today, they were hedging, they were using a lot of different qualifier words around the word recession because they've been, I guess, just informed from the people upstairs that we're not just going to use the traditional definition anymore. I just need to know from your perspective, if this were happening when you were press secretary under the president that you served— And there were back-to-back quarters of negative growth, and you guys decided that you were going to just announce to the media that the definition doesn't apply anymore, and really the definition needs to be changed or you're not really going to use it. Um, How accommodating would the press corps be to your new definition
1: Oh, it w- it would have been awful. They would have. I probably would have made wouldn't have made it out of that room alive. I mean, <laughs> what's crazy is we actually had a booming economy under President Trump, and they denied it all along. I mean, they are completely uh, and total allies of the Democrat Party. It's hard to find the separation between the Democrats and the media. And just because they changed the definition of a recession doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Every single American right now is feeling the pain when they're buying groceries, paying our energy bills, gassing up our cars. And, um, you know, I think it's crazy. We actually had a good story to tell and they refused to write about it. And right now, every single thing that the Biden administration touches, they destroy and they refuse to write those truths. So, um, You know, I think for most of us watching, it can be very frustrating. I think one thing I think many of us can agree on, Guy, is that we all know what the definition of failure is, and that's a Joe Biden presidency. And we're seeing that play out every single day on the national stage across the country.
0: In your state The Republican governor right now, I was looking at some approval ratings the other day of all the governors. He has a strong approval rating. What do you think Governor Hutchinson has been doing well in Arkansas, and what would you try to perhaps change or build on as part of your agenda? If you get elected, as expected, you're the front runner? If you're going to become the next governor of Arkansas, what do you want to keep going and what do you want to do differently?
1: You know, I think one of the things that has been a a, a positive movement for the state of Arkansas, that the governor and our state legislature have worked on is historic tax cuts. Um, Income tax here in Arkansas is relatively high, and they have worked on starting to bring that down and that's something I certainly want to continue and begin phasing out the state income tax here in Arkansas and reward people's hard work instead of penalizing it at the hands of the government and I think that's one of the best places that we can provide instant uh, and permanent relief is by phasing that out here in Arkansas one of the areas I really want to zero in and focus on as governor is education I think it's something we have long ignored not just in our state but frankly, across the country, and we have not done a good job of making sure our kids are actually prepared for the workforce. We're setting so many kids up for a lifetime of government dependency instead of putting them on a pathway to success. I want to focus on educating, not indoctrinating, empowering our parents, not government bureaucrats, and making sure they're ready to take on the next step and enter the workforce when they either finish high school or uh, attend a trade or vocational school or go on to a four-year degree. We have to make sure that the ultimate goal is that we are preparing them to step in and be contributing members to society. And I don't think we've done that in education, and certainly the numbers and the data don't reflect that we have.
0: Sarah Sanders is my guest, often referred to as Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and that name is familiar because, of course, her father ran for president. Before that, he was the governor of Arkansas for multiple terms, and so you grew up around a governor. Now you want that job that your dad once held. Obviously, it's a different world than it was back then it's a different state in some ways but it's still arkansas how often do you talk to your dad about the campaign how much will you lean on him if you're governor for advice and where do you think maybe things are similar enough that he could be a resource for you
1: yeah i try to get as uh much free advice as i can from my dad i tell him all the time that he's the best governor that our state has ever seen. And frankly, one of the best governors our country has ever seen. And I look forward to at least taking the title of best governor of Arkansas away from him. And <laughs> he's uh, He laughs, but is very supportive in that effort. And uh, certainly he and my mom are my, my two biggest cheerleaders and biggest sources of encouragement um, and are a phenomenal resource to be able to lean on. You know, the state makeup was very different when my dad came into office, when he was first elected as the lieutenant governor he was only the fourth Republican elected statewide in 150 years. And now uh, Arkansas has become very much a red state, very conservative state. And the makeup of the legislature is very different. He had Four out of 35 senators were Republicans when he was governor, and 11 out of 100 House members. And now Republicans have super majorities in both. So while the environment is better for a Republican, I think the expectations are bigger as well. Um, He had to fight for every single movement. To me, that means we have a lot of opportunity to do really transformative things for our state. And the expectations are high for us to yeah. to deliver. And I look forward to, to meeting those and hopefully even excelling the expectations that exist out there.
0: Well, look, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of expectation, as you said, uh, and that's all true. Um, I also think that there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of power and influence that any governor has. And with that comes attention from the press Criticism, I think women, conservative women in politics often have a target on their back for you know a lot of uh, criticism and attacks from the left, from the media, sort of often the same thing. As you think about the responsibility, the huge amount of responsibility that you would have if you win this election in November, are there Republican governors around the country who already have the job in this era, in this day and age, that you talk to on any sort of a regular basis just to sort of give you some pointers, not just on the, you know, election front, but as you start to think about what your governing approach would look like, are there governors in particular that you especially admire or lean on or talk to?
1: Yeah, Certainly, and outside of my dad, you know, there are a lot of governors that are doing really great things at the state level. In fact, I think if Uh, One of the most positive things that has come out of the last couple of years is people have been awakened to the impact that their governors have and are paying much closer attention to who are serving in those positions and in those roles. And engaging in politics in a much bigger way because of it. And we've seen our conservative governors step up around the country, I think, and be the leaders that we need to push back against an out of control, radical left Washington. Um, And I say, I try to talk to and steal ideas from as many as I can because they're doing remarkable things. I think that's one of the bonuses of governors that's very different than what you'll see in Washington. Washington so often is completely polarized to the point that it becomes paralyzed and they have no ability to make or impact change. But in the states and on the state level, you're seeing a very different story. And there's a much greater sense, I think, too, of camaraderie among governors willing to share good ideas and best practices of things that are working. Uh, Governor Reynolds in Iowa, I have known for a long time, have a great relationship and a great amount of respect for her. Um, Got a lot of great governors surrounding Arkansas, Governor Parson in Missouri, Governor Lee in Tennessee, um, that will have to work closely to do some things um, that will go across state lines and have impact for both states but at the end of the day we've got 36 governor's races taking place this year alone and I think conservatives are going to come out the big winner uh, in November and we'll see a lot of governors working closely together over the next several years trying to make sure that certainly again we protect against that radical left mandate coming out of Washington but also focusing on moving our states forward. Fighting back against bad ideas is only half the battle. We also have to focus and lead with heart and vision on how we're going to take our states to the next level. And I think that sense of camaraderie among conservative governors will never be higher than it is after November. That's at the
0: state level. At the federal level, there's all sorts of chatter, of course, looking past even November to the next election, which is what so many people do in the media. We're guilty of it here, no doubt. But. It's not like we're at a loss for news hooks or we're inventing stuff. It's very much an active conversation right now. Your former boss, President Trump, talking about, heavily hinting that he is going to run again for the presidency in 2024. Some people love that idea. Some people do not on the Republican side. feel like maybe it's time for someone else. Uh, Do you have a view on whether he should run again uh, and and maybe any view on whether if he decides to run, should he announce before the midterms or maybe wait till after? Have you thought about that much?
1: You know, I think whether a person runs for office is a very personal decision, Um, and having gone through the decision-making process, uh, both to decide whether I'll throw my hat in the ring, but also being part of conversations with my uh, immediate family when my dad was going through that process, it's very personal. And I think that the only people who can make that decision are, you know, that individual and their family. And I I think we have a lot of people that are going through that right now. The good news is I think President Trump has an incredible story to tell and a great record to run on, which is different than when he launched and ran the very first time in 2016. And in comparison to the completely failed Biden administration. I think that matchup and uh, certainly bodes well for the president, but it's a personal decision and I'll stay out of the way and let him make it. I learned a long time ago that's the best way uh, to survive is, you know, be there when the decision is made, but uh, certainly has a remarkable story to tell if he decides to throw his hat in the ring again.
0: On the other side of the aisle, the sitting president, Joe Biden, I mean, the knives are out for him Among Democrats, the polls are terrible. It seems like there's an overwhelming desire for him to move on and not seek reelection. Do you think that, you know, he survives this or is is he a one term or one way or another?
1: Uh, I I think he's definitely, for the the sake of the country, I hope that he's a one-term president because I'm not sure that America uh, can or wants to withstand four more years under President Biden and the failed policies that we have seen them enact and and force down over the last couple of years.
0: Sarah Huckabee Sanders was White House press secretary under President Trump. She is now the GOP nominee for governor. In her home state of Arkansas, where her dad was governor, and she is the runaway favorite to win that race. So if we don't have you back before November, Sarah, perhaps next time we have you on the show, I'll have to call you governor. That would be kind of fun.
1: I sure hope so. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me come on today, Guy.
0: You bet. Sarah Sanders on The Guy Benson Show. We will step aside and come right back after this.
3: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Coming up, Carl Rove, the architect. He will be here in the next hour. Plus, I'll bring you some updates out of Washington, D.C. on the politics of the day and this big, giant spending and tax spree that the Democrats are apparently ready to spring just in the nick of time. It's Like, oh, wait, massive inflation. Let's spend more money. Oh, wait, recession. Let's raise taxes. It, your jaw just sort of drops. This is who they are. It's what they believe. Double down, triple down, and demand that you be grateful. And if you're not, try to change the rules, change the terms. I love that from Sarah Sanders. If she had tried to do exactly this, a little switcheroo, on what the word means, recession, in the White House briefing room, she said, I'm not sure I'd have made it out alive. They would have eaten her alive. Oh, uh, Orwellian. Lies. And now they're like, yes, sir, we'll do that for you, Team Democrat, that we definitely don't belong to. How dare you? Meanwhile, at the White House today, President Biden had an early call with Chairman Xi of the Chinese Communist Party. Reportedly, based on the readout, it lasted more than two hours. A lot to talk about. The Chinese have been rattling their saber over this potential visit from Speaker Pelosi to Taiwan. And really kind of like threatening things, saying some menacing stuff about you know blood and fire and all this. This is what authoritarian regimes often do. They bluster. But the Chinese also have a huge amount of power behind them. As they continue to mess with us, the espionage we've been talking about. We read you part of a story from CNN. There was a Wall Street Journal piece this week about the espionage where they're trying to compromise or buy off people at the fed to get information that was not public from them that's been uncovered by an investigation the chinese are playing hardball for keeps they want to supplant us as global leaders and we either take that seriously and fight back and win or they will succeed because they're determined and ruthless now i do like this ahead of pelosi's potential visit The United States military has positioned an aircraft carrier and a strike group in the South China Sea. Just as like a little, hi, we're still here. You're not going to tell us what we can and cannot do, where our leaders can and cannot travel. And I hope Pelosi does go. I do. But I agree with Morgan Ortega, as I've said, when she was on the show this week. They shouldn't have had a big public debate. Just do it. All right. Car Rove is on deck. You don't want to miss that interview. Straight ahead, Guy Benson Show.
3: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show kicking off. Thanks so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Also around the clock at GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast on demand for free. Also at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. That's where you can follow us, our show accounts. I'll be joining Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network. And then one lucky guy on Outnumbered tomorrow, FNC at noon. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow closes up 332 points, ending at 32,529, so not a down day on Wall Street despite the recession arriving. Maybe some people on Wall Street kind of agree that eh, maybe it's a recession, maybe it's not, but markets certainly ended in the green. Let's talk to Karl Rove to make sense of at least some of this former deputy chief of staff and senior advisor to President George W. Bush, author of The Triumph of William McKinley. He's a columnist at The Wall Street Journal and a Fox News contributor. Carl, great to have you as always.
4: Thanks for having me, Guy. Great to be on.
0: What do you make of the news today on the recession layered on top of inflation and then the efforts by this administration to just redefine terms that they find politically inconvenient?
4: Well, uh, you know, the bad news was the economy contracted in the second quarter. The good news was it didn't contract as much as it did in the first quarter. So, I guess if you're a glass half-empty guy, you say we're we're in a recession, but we're starting we're starting to come out of it. We started coming out in the last three months, and that probably is true. It's likely that you know maybe we'll in the next quarter be deeper uh, deeper back into the recession. Maybe we won't. Who knows? But I do know this. Inflation is not going away soon. Glad the, the Federal Reserve ratcheted up the interest rate, but we're still the, we're, the interest rate is still well below the level of inflation. And traditionally, the, the way that you extinguish in, inflation is to make certain that real interest rates are at or above the level of inflation, and which means we got more uh, more. Interest rate increases in the future, and that means that's going to have a bad impact on both uh, business and industry and the, and the and the households.
0: Carl, I see on Fox News Channel, Neil Cavuto is getting into it with a White House advisor, Gene Sperling. Sperling insisting that the White House, the administration, quote, not seeing recessionary signs. They're not seeing recessionary signs except i guess like the number one recessionary sign which is back to back quarters of negative growth it's just sort of crazy to me it just drives me nuts that people try to our faces to say the dictionary definition of something that has been met isn't really the thing that matters anymore and aside from the top line most glaringly obvious thing there's some other things that you know you need to consider more it's just it's it's pretty audacious
4: yeah are you surprised no. These are the people who said last year the inflation that was rip-roaring all across the country was, quote, transitory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was the administration was talking about how we had such a fantastic economy when three quarters of the American people said they thought the country was going in the wrong direction and that they were being negatively impacted by inflation, that their wages were not keeping up with the costs that they had to pay at the grocery store or at the gas pump. So, look, these, these people are doing the best they can with the with the reality that they can. But it is governed by a political instinct that says the, the people are dumb. We can walk, talk our way through this. And, uh, you know, oh, God, look at it. Gas prices, have come down 40 cents in the last 40 days. Uh, isn't that great? No, I'm paying twice as much as I did a year and a half ago when you got sworn into office. So, I, I, you know, and, and I, I tip my hat. They at least are sticking to their plan, and their plan is a bad one.
0: Yeah, and the plan and is—
4: I Tell the American people they're not, they're not suffering what they're suffering.
0: Yeah, and, and apparently part of the plan, and we'll get into the details later this hour, in addition is to raise taxes more and to spend more, which is what they're, I guess, getting ready to do, these Democrats on Capitol Hill. Carl, I just want to mention this story because you and I had talked about this in the past— All the misinformation, all the scare tactics, all the fear mongering around Georgia's election reform law, which we were told was, well, just actually Jim Crow, segregation, 2.0, voter suppression, all this horrible stuff. Well, here's an update on that front.
3: It's a Guy Benson show, Jim Crow on steroids, Georgia voter suppression update.
0: We have fun with it because they lied so hard for so long about what the bill would do, what the law would do, and then we got the results in the somewhat recent now, just a couple of weeks ago. The primaries down there where they broke a bunch of records, totally uh, blew out the numbers from 2018 in terms of voter participation and turnout, including among groups that they said would be suppressed. It wasn't true. There was no suppression. There was a big increase in voting in the state of Georgia, and yet, Carl— There was a big NPR, like local PBS investigative report that's focusing only on the issues of ballot drop box access. And they're trying to drum up anger and frustration and fear that because drop boxes were restricted under the Georgia law compared to the very weird year of a big, you know, global pandemic, not compared to anything before that, but they, they choose a baseline and they choose and cherry pick a starting point like, well, they suppressed access to these drop boxes for ballots and therefore fewer people had access to them and fewer people were able to use them. And that's the big investigative report they're trying to get traction on here, basically ignoring the fact that despite that so-called suppression that was occurring, that they're focusing on they're zooming really close up on that one issue when you zoom out. There was no suppression and voter participation went way up. It just seems so desperate, like they they had this narrative that they peddled for so long that they have to try to backfill ways to kind of make it seem like less of a lie. I just don't know who they think they're persuading because the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the outcome. The proof is in the turnout.
4: Yeah. Well, look, if this were true, uh, that this law is. Repressive and discriminatory. When are they going to? When are they going to file an action against the laws of the state of Delaware? Delaware will allow voters for the first time this fall to vote early. Uh, only he. Guess what? They won't have as many days as Georgia, nor as many hours, nor as many drop boxes, nor as many locations. And yet, somehow or another, it's discriminatory. If they've been doing it for decades in Georgia to allow people to vote early, but it's not discriminatory for it. <laughs> excuse me, for them never to have allowed people in Delaware to do it until this year.
0: <laughs> he's he's getting all verklempt. It's so outrageous. The talking points are so bad that Carl's having a coughing fit, and I don't blame him. And, I mean, we've made that point about New York, about Delaware, about these different states, these blue states that were never called suppressor states. They only do that for Republicans. And then it gets disproven. There was no suppression. Turnout way up. It's really good news. All the fake, you know, misleading stuff turned out to be totally wrong. Voters were like, oh, yeah, this was great. This was easy. It, was, it wasn't even like a tiny uptick. It was a huge uptick in people who decided to turn out and vote in the primaries in Georgia. And I guess this is what the media down there is reduced to, trying to, you know, nitpick one specific thing that was, you know, not as available. Something that had never happened before the pandemic but now it's not you know, enshrined forever, and so it's suppression. I just think it's so deeply misleading, and because Carl had talked about it here on the show before, I wanted to just bring that note to our listeners' attention. Carl, I do want to ask you one more question here. You have a column at The Wall Street Journal about Trump's donations, all the money that he's raking in. If you want to comment on that briefly. And then secondly, we have two minutes left. Joe Biden seems to be in very big trouble within his own party. They don't want him there anymore. They're openly talking about tossing him out. How does a party go about uprooting a sitting president of the United States if he doesn't want to go and if he wants to seek reelection?
4: Well, look, he's not going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. It's not going to be pretty. Uh, There are going to be people sort of maneuvering around like Newsom and Pritzker and others already are, Polis. Uh, after the election, that's going to step up, and it's going to become apparent that the president cannot uh, win renomination of his party, nor should he. And at that point, he'll do what is a rational thing to do, which is to try and take lemons and turn them into lemonade by saying, "It's you know, I'm going to focus the next two years on uh, uniting the country and moving our party and our, our nation to get forward. And, uh, but I want to give everybody a chance to get into the contest. So he'll, he'll do, at the appropriate time, uh, the right thing. But it's not going to be pretty between now and then. Um, but this is, you know, we've we've known this for a while. I mean, why should we be surprised? It is clear that he is, is finding it hard to grapple with the job today. And nobody thinks that he's going to get better uh, when he's 82 years old, which is what he would be in 2024. And so people, Democrats are not going to nominate him because they don't want to lose the White House. And uh, and they know that he'd be a sure loser.
0: And 30 seconds on your column on the Trump donations.
4: Look, he's got $121 million in the bank. What can he do with it? He cannot convert it into a presidential campaign. If he declares for president this fall and takes the spotlight off of the Biden administration... He's going to have to go start raising money because he cannot. I've talked to federal election lawyer after election lawyer. He has to file a new committee, and he cannot transfer those monies, convert them into his presidential campaign. So the question is, is he going to start spending that money? All of us have been seeing those emails. They say contribute so we can beat the Democrats. And the question is when and where and how is he going to start spending that money to defeat Democrats? Yeah,
0: TikTok tock because it's a lot of money. And the Democrats are outraising Republicans. Is he actually going to hoard it? Or is he going to help people on the Republican side beat the Democrats with that war chest? We'll see. Carl Rove, as always, sir. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Couldn't help but chuckle, honestly, at this. Coming out of Washington, D.C., we mentioned the mayor of D.C., also the mayor of New York City, grousing and griping about some of these illegal immigrants who are being shipped into their jurisdictions from border communities. They don't like it. Bowser was like, we got to do something about this. The federal government, they're crossing state lines. Can you believe this? Mayor Adams in New York, oh, they're affecting our resources. We don't have the personnel. We don't have the, the space for them. Our schools are going to be affected. Our programs That we offer are going to be affected. It's like, yeah. No bleep, you guys. We know. This has been the everyday reality for border states and communities throughout the entire Biden presidency. And it's gotten worse and worse. And you guys are all about it. You support the administration that's responsible for it. You support very lax enforcement in the name of diversity and equity and all that stuff. It's all about compassion. But then... When a tiny little fraction of the problem, teeny fraction, shows up at your doorstep, suddenly, wait a second, we don't like this. What's going on here? That's supposed to be for the other people to deal with, not for us. It's like, welcome to reality. So here's the update. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has now requested the National Guard be activated indefinitely to help deal with the migrant buses arriving in D.C., Largely from the state of Texas, this is what Governor Abbott has done, being like, okay, we're going to put a bunch of them onto buses and ship them directly to Washington, put them right on the doorstep of Capitol Hill, basically. They're creating the problem. They won't fix the problem. Here's a little bit of the problem. How are you going to enjoy that? What are you going to do? And the super woke, progressive, compassionate people in Washington, D.C., in the government, very quickly are crying uncle. Bring in the National Guard. Send in the troops. Bowser called it, quote, a humanitarian crisis that has reached, quote, a tipping point. 4,000 migrants have shown up so far. So she's asking for help. She's asking for the National Guard. Look at this crisis here in Washington, D.C., the tipping point. For goodness sakes, there have been 4,000 of them. Bill Malugian, our Fox News colleague who covers the border, we talk about these issues with him here all the time, He notes on Twitter that 4,000 illegal immigrants cross into Texas every single day on a slow day. Governor Abbott down there has said because Biden won't visit the border, won't slow down the problem, won't change his policies, Texas will bring some of the border up to him in D.C. And within weeks of this starting, with this drop in the bucket arriving, the mayor is freaking out about a crisis And requesting National Guard assistance, imagine that. Oh, wow. Do you not like that, Muriel? Is this a problem? You've gotten the equivalent of one day's worth of Texas entries into the district over the course of a few months. Mayor Adams, oh, our our strained resources, this is not sustainable, you think? Why is it not sustainable for you guys on this tiny scale, but it's just perfectly fine and not a crisis down at the border for those states, those leaders, those communities? This is a stunt by the state of Texas. This is a stunt by Greg Abbott, but it's an effective stunt. It is proving a point, and it's paying off because the leaders being targeted, especially Bowser, they are basically playing directly into the trap that Abbott has set to illustrate a point. Because it's a point that is kind of unavoidable. As D.C. and New York are learning the hard way, it seems. One more sort of related note is a story in the L.A. Times describing the phenomenon, which is relatively recent, of Americans from Los Angeles and elsewhere flooding into Mexico, particularly Mexico City, the capital city of Mexico. Kate Linthicum who's a reporter at the Los Angeles Times, shared this piece, and she says, Mexico City is being flooded by Americans, including legions of remote workers drawn by cheaper rents. They're transforming classic neighborhoods, the housing market, and even racial dynamics. More and more locals in Mexico City are asking them to please go home. Oh. Oh. So Americans are saying, well, rents are pretty cheap down there in Mexico City. I can work from home. Let me go seek out a more affordable apartment. I'll live in Mexico City for a while. And sort of the vibe in certain neighborhoods are changing because of all these Americans showing up. The housing market transformed. Ooh, racial dynamics shifting. Maybe it's not, what, the great replacement, like a mini-replacement? And the locals down in Mexico City don't want it. They don't like it. And they're asking these Americans to leave. I don't think I need to spell out the irony for you. If anything, I hope this trend may increase or continue. Because perhaps it will get so significant and enough Mexicans will get so fed up over these changes. And by the way, these are not illegal crossings into Mexico. That's a very important distinction. Americans aren't sneaking into Mexico, they're just showing up legally, and the Mexicans have a problem with it. Imagine if it was in violation of the law. But maybe, if enough of this happens, the Mexicans will build the wall. Like the Mexican president, who's a leftist, will be like, we need a big, beautiful wall, because they're not sending their best. That's how you get the wall built, for Mexico to build it, because they can't handle all the Americans showing up, because economic times are so bad here in the United States and things are so unaffordable under the Biden administration. (laughs) File this one in the you can't make it up category. I got to run. We'll take a break. We'll come back when we return. What just happened in the Senate? Did Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer pull a fast one on Republicans? It seems so. What comes next? My analysis when we return.
3: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: As we return to the Guy Benson show. So some news broke late yesterday that Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, had in fact come to an agreement on something kind of approaching Build Back Better light. We know that Build Back Better was the $5 trillion scheme that every House Democrat voted for except for one. All of them. They passed it out of the House, a total monstrosity, and the Democrats were just a few votes shy of passing it in the Senate as well, but Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema couldn't do it, so they were very mad at Joe. Then Manchin was in negotiations again, more recently with Schumer, on a spinoff bill that would be more modest but still a big piece of legislation – And then Manchin said he was out. He was done with all the inflation and the bad economic news. He just felt like it was a bad idea. Goodbye. And the left went ballistic. They were expecting something of a climate change bill, and boy were they mad at Joe Manchin again. It was like all the mounting building frustration at different increments over the last year and a half finally came to a head, and they lost it. And part of the timing of Manchin walking away from all of it was an ultimatum that Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, had made, saying that if those negotiations continued, if they were going to pursue a climate change spending tax hike bill, then he was going to hold up, McConnell was, another bill dealing with China. It was USICA was the name of it that eventually imploded, but there was a component of it called the CHIPS Act Act which has some things that commend it, other things that I think are bad. It did pass yesterday with bipartisan support. 17 Senate Republicans voted yes on this CHIPS Act, on microchips. It's meant to be sort of a pushback, a counterweight against China. It's very expensive, hundreds of billions of dollars. And a number of Republicans went along with it. Uh, Most Senate Republicans did not. But that was sort of the hostage that McConnell was willing to take legislatively, to prevent Manchin from going further down this path with Chuck Schumer on a big spending bill with tax increases. And it seemed like Manchin had said, okay, we're not going to do that. It seemed like McConnell had won, that his jujitsu had succeeded, but then literally a couple hours after the CHIPS Act was passed and the legislative hostage was released, if you will, Surprise, surprise, Joe Manchin announces, actually, guess what? We have a deal on this other thing. Which kind of feels like that was the scheme in secret all along. And it looks like, at least in this circumstance, the Republicans got played. Now, let me just say, there are lots of roadblocks and stumbling blocks in the way of this Manchin-Schumer deal becoming law. There are hurdles that would have to be overcome. There is some moving parts right now. Kirsten Sinema saying she's not sure. You've got the Senate parliamentarian. What are they going to rule on various components of the bill? Can it be passed through reconciliation? The House has a very slim margin for the Democrats, and it looks like Republicans might all line up against it because they're ticked off that Manchin double-crossed McConnell or whatever. It's not clear that this is going to be smooth sailing. If I had to bet, though, ultimately when the chips are down, when the Democrats have power and they have an opportunity to raise taxes, increase spending, and grow the government, they are going to do it. They would like a much bigger package. They would like to do a lot more damage. But if this is what they can get and the alternative is nothing and they feel like they're about to lose an election and their power is going to go away... And right now, their base is still annoyed with them. I think it is highly unlikely, possible, but highly unlikely that they allow this moment again to pass and serve up a big empty L for their base. So my guess is this is going to get done on some level. And they've got a limited period of time and window to actually achieve it. But Manchin is often the sticking point, so the fact that this was basically his deal announced with Schumer is a pretty strong indicator that this is where they're going. Manchin has saved the country from a lot worse. There are components of previous iterations, especially the original Build Back Better, that would have been so much more harmful. And I'm grateful to Manchin for holding the line on some of it, I'm grateful to Manchin for holding the line on the filibuster, for example, and not allowing the party to descend into madness and blowing up the institution of the Senate and packing the court and all the other things that they wanted to do. So-called voting rights. Manchin's been fairly reasonable on abortion. I'm not going to allow this moment of frustration and anger with him to color my overall judgment and say, oh, well, he's just like all the other Democrats. They're all the same no matter what. He is... Better than almost everyone else, at least on Capitol Hill, in his party, ideologically. And that remains true. And also, his vote's going to remain very important for the foreseeable future. So Republicans staying angry at him would be just as dumb as all the Democrats who were screaming in his face at every opportunity, basically. His vote is a swing vote. And even if the Senate changes hands or if a few seats shift here or there... He is going to wield a lot of power and influence in the next Congress as well. So staying super mad at him is counterproductive. That doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve criticism here, and I think he absolutely does. He's been saying, oh, shucks, we shouldn't do this stuff. Look at the inflation. Look at, you know, recession might be coming. Let's not go toward this. Let's not go in that direction. Well, it looks like now he has fully blessed a plan that he is calling anti-inflation. He's calling it an anti-deficit bill, but it just blows my mind that in an era of rampant inflation that we're in right now, inflation uh, last month, more than 9% year-over-year growth on inflation, people getting hammered, that they're going to come and spend close to half a trillion dollars in new spending. That's what this bill would call for nearly half a trillion on top of the chips act from yesterday that they actually passed hundreds of billions of dollars more. Like we're getting close in the ballpark of a trillion dollars of new spending on top of all the other stuff with crazy inflation right now. What the hell are they thinking? Now what they say is this is anti-inflationary and it reduces deficits because it raises taxes even more than it spends. So, All of those savings, that excess revenue, will be used to pay down deficits and debt. That's what Manchin tells us. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge in West Virginia to sell you. We don't do paying down of debts in this country. It's just an increase in the debt constantly. When you get new spending, that remains permanent. Some of the tax increases aren't permanent or they're dubious. Like they're going to really beef up the IRS as part of the plan to do a lot more enforcement Guess who that's going to hit? Not just big business or millionaires. That's going to hit everyone. A much more muscular IRA digging around, scrounging for cash. And often they overestimate what that kind of enforcement will actually bring in. They overestimate the type of revenue effects that tax increases will bring in. So I am very skeptical of the idea that this will even ultimately net out to be deficit neutral. But even if you want to believe that, It raises taxes in a significant way. This raises taxes by hundreds of billions of dollars. So you're going to raise spending, new spending, roughly half a trillion in the middle of inflation. And then with recession literally arriving today on the traditional definition, today that became official. And you can imagine that the recession could get worse in the month's quarters to come. A lot of the expectations were next year would be the difficult time for recession, given what's happening with inflation on that timeline. If the recession gets worse, the whole picture gets a lot uglier. But on the day that we officially tipped into a recession, the Democrats have announced that they're going to raise taxes by hundreds of billions of dollars. Individuals and businesses have been absolutely crushed during the pandemic. A lot of the businesses couldn't operate, couldn't operate at full capacity. Now we're finally coming out of that. But because of inflation, we're about to go into or are already in another recession. And They're like, you know what? Let's raise taxes. Let's raise taxes on businesses because that's fair. The business tax increase, one of the big pieces of this, the largest tax increase, was actually scored by a nonpartisan expert group, the Tax Foundation, last year, a similar tax increase. And they concluded that it would reduce GDP growth and cut jobs. Just what we need, just in the nick of time for recession. Yes, let's reduce GDP further. Let's shed jobs in our economy. It's crazy. It is crazy that they're going in this direction. And yet it appears that that's what the Democrats fully intend to do. While calling it an anti-inflation bill. I know Larry Summers is saying. Oh yes this is good pass it. Ultimately he's a Democrat. He's been dumping on the party. And their plans enough. That I think he kind of has to get back on side for this one. And he's got some credibility. He was right on inflation. He's been very worried about recession. Correct again. Here he is putting the Democrat hat back on. And saying all right let's do this thing. Just ask yourself. As a non-expert. In inflation, do you think the government needs to spend half a trillion dollars more right now, new spending? With recession arriving, do you think tax increases and a more muscular IRS and taxing job creators is a good idea as we head into recession? What do you think? I think the answer is definitely not. But they've got a bunch of climate investments in this thing. I saw there was actually a tax increase on coal, which is quite an interesting choice, given where Joe Manchin is from. And you might get some grousing and griping from the left and the progressives. It's not good enough. It's not what we wanted. But as I said, I think if this is it, the only game in town in their last chance, last gasp, I think they're going to get in line and get the thing passed. And I don't think it will help the economy, to put it mildly. And guess what? Ultimately, Joe Manchin is a Democrat. He's better than most of them for the reasons that I've already acknowledged in this segment. I'm grateful for some of the things that he's done. But He's really not allergic to taxing and spending. That's sort of what the Democrats do. Their whole reason for existence, aside from supporting abortion on demand through birth, the entire point of the party is to raise taxes and increase spending and grow the scope and size of the government. It's why they exist. It's why they're here. And Manchin is a Democrat for a reason. He's voted for every Biden judge as another example. So the idea that he was just going to always effectively act as a Republican, A, wasn't true already, wasn't realistic as an expectation, and I would just say as we head toward November now, just remember, this is what we get. When the country elects Democrats to control everything, the presidency, the House, the Senate, those blown races in Georgia, both Senate races, when that's what the American people do, this is the result. Americans made their choice, they were tired of Donald Trump, OK, fine. What's the alternative? This. How's that? How's it working out on issue after issue after issue? And you can count maybe on a few tiny handful of Democrats to stop the craziest stuff from time to time, but they're still Democrats. And the only way to make sure that this kind of thing cannot happen. Is to ensure that Republicans win back at least the House And it would be very helpful for them to win the Senate as well, given the types of nominees that will be shoveled at the Senate by Team Biden over the next two and a half years. So it's just another cautionary tale, call to action, point of urgency as we think about November. You can't just count on Joe Manchin to always do the right thing and to always buck his party because it's ultimately his party and not by accident. So let's wait and see. The House could be a little bit precarious for them. Very small margin for error for Pelosi. Some competing factions, a few sounds here or there that people aren't happy. The Senate parliamentarian might have something to say. Kirsten Cinema has gone silent, at least for the moment. She apparently wasn't at a meeting today about this at the Democratic caucus. So it could still go sideways. But my money is they're going to pass something here. And the country will be worse off for it. But they're going to pretend like it saved the planet until the next time they say that they need to save the planet with their next scheme, which will raise taxes and grow the government. Surprise! It's their solution to almost everything. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Stay with us.
3: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show, and welcome back to Woke Tales.
4: Woke Tales.
0: We read to you earlier in the week in a Woke Tales segment a piece from Aaron Sabarium at the Washington Free Beacon. He's got another one. This is about a New York City public elementary school. Remember, they tell us none of this stuff is happening, and we're crazy and probably racist if we think it's happening or allege that it is. But, of course, it is happening. And here's just the latest example. A New York City public school encouraged students as young as 10 to keep a list of all the, quote, microaggressions they witnessed, both at school and in their own families. According to materials from the school's curriculum reviewed by the Washington Free Beacon, the same students were asked to list their gender identity, cisgender, non-binary or trans, as well as their sexual orientation on a graded worksheet. These are 10 year olds. For some sixth graders. Students were required to read the book. This book is anti-racist. One of only five books assigned for the entire school year. It contains 20 lessons on how to wake up, take action and do the work, including confronting the police, which the author says only white students can do without ending up, quote, in jail or harmed. If you were a black, brown, or indigenous person of the global majority, you will need to decide how each outcome could end for you, this book says, required for these kids. White people, this is not something you need to do because you are at the center of the system. This is what these children are being taught. The book also asks students to surveil their friends and family for racist behavior. Grab your notebook, one activity instructs. Look and listen for the microaggressions around you. Write them down and note your observations. Another activity asks students how folks with an X in their families resisted or contributed to racism. Defined as, quote, the systemic misuse and abuse of power by institutions. They tell us, oh, there is no CRT. This is all just fever swamp craziness from right wingers. Of course, it's not. We brought you the story of a left-wing teacher blowing the whistle, saying it is as bad or worse than you think. As a leftist, he wrote that story that we quoted. This is a New York City school with elementary school kids, middle school age kids, telling them to surveil, to snitch on their own friends and family for wrong think or microaggressions while announcing their sexual orientation and gender identity. These are 10-year-olds. That seems certainly very healthy to you, doesn't it? Not any sort of disturbing form of indoctrination no wonder the polling on stuff like this is so toxic for the democrats and their teacher union friends and the activists in their coalition which is why we'll keep highlighting it especially as they triple down on gaslighting pretending like it's not happening it is and it's woke tales Tales. final hour of the guy benson show is straight ahead joe concha is here On the media, a lot to get to on that front. Next.
3: It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
0: It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday from New York City. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. We air 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. The happy hour is 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, delicious and refreshing and expanding across this land. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. And our website, available to people of all ages, is GuyBensonShow.com. You can get the free podcast there every day on demand, also at Foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Kennedy, Fox Business Network in the 7 p.m. hour, and tomorrow on the news channel, co-hosting Outnumbered at Noon. So with all of that housekeeping out of the way, important stuff, let's get to our final guest today. It's Joe Concha, Fox News contributor and columnist at The Hill, a media critic. Joe, welcome back.
2: Hey, guy. Happy is it Friday. I don't even know what day it is. Thursday. Thursday. Feels like a Friday.
0: Well, it's recession day, Joe. But don't ask the media to tell us that because they have just in the last couple of days, it's remarkable, Joe Concha, The administration starts to seed a talking point that even if a recession arrives based on the traditional definition, it won't really be a recession. And just coincidentally, immediately, the mainstream media collectively, for the most part, starts to move away from the traditional definition and – adopting the spin hole or at least hedging because they don't want to violate the new rules dictated by their bosses in the Democratic Party. It is not subtle, Joe.
2: (laughs) Subtlety is not the word I would apply here as well, guy. It's just so obvious. You're right. I mean, this is like saying, you know, you really do get four outs per inning or half inning in baseball. You know, three. I know we've gone with that for a while, but you know, there's other qualifications and contexts. Yeah, it's, like, it's like,
0: you know, there's strike three called, and the media's like, what many argue could be the definition of a strikeout.
2: <laughs> exactly. There is no interpretation. There is no gray area, no <laughs> ambiguity. I, I mean, that's the thing forever. It's been defined that a recession occurs when you have two straight quarters of negative growth, and that's exactly what we've had put on top of that, by the way. We are approaching 10% unemployment. We have interest rates going through the roof now. The housing market, I can tell you because I'm looking perhaps for another house, we're not going to look anymore because the interest rates are so high, yet the home prices are still also insanely high. So there's all these things happening now within this economy that tell you It sucks. There's no other way to put it, really. It sucks. And it's going to get suckier before it gets better because of the people that are in charge who think that if you pass a $700 billion spending bill and call it the, I mean, I can't believe it's actually called this, what, the inflation uh, reduction bill?
0: That's it. That's what they're
2: calling it. How does that happen? Thank you, guys. What what was it called again? Um,
0: uh, It's the Inflation Reduction Act. And they can call it whatever they want. And look, It is true that one of the bright spots right now is employment. Unemployment is low. Jobs are plentiful. The job market is good. That's a fair point to make, and they can make it without trying to redefine the term recession. And sort of to your point, Joe, if the recession deepens, if the anti-inflation measures taken by the Fed deepen the recession and make it more painful than some of the current brighter spots or silver linings of the economy will get darker in all likelihood as a result of that. So they're sort of playing whack-a-mole and hanging their hat on certain talking points at the moment that could change. And I guess they'll have to come up with some new definitions at that point. What is the unemployment rate? We'll start playing games with that. What is a job really? It, you, sort of the possibilities, Joe, are endless.
2: Remember what AOC said when she was asked adoring Trump's uh, 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 first term or only term, I should say, uh, well, why do you think unemployment is so low? Don't you at least give the president credit for that? And she says, well, unemployment's so low because everybody has two jobs, and they're trying to make ends meet. So in other words, as one person, if you work two jobs, that lowers the unemployment rate. These are the people that are considered leaders or potential presidential candidates. And you're right. We have seen this movie before. We saw it with inflation. First, it's transitory. Then it's the Putin price hike. Then it's evil oil companies trying to pick the pockets of the American consumer when mom-and-pop gas stations aren't trying to do that. And every talking point failed. So this is going to fail too, just like with gas prices. They're doing all these end zone dances now because it has come down, yes. But we all know it's coming in October. There's going to be more embargoes in Europe on Russian oil. And every energy analyst that you talk to, guys says that by October, you could be looking at $6 a gallon gasoline. And then what are they going to say about that? Either way, I would hope the American people, outside of the rabid partisans that watch the MSNBCs of the world, they know what's going on because they feel it, and I, and you got to hope that they vote that way as well just to punish this administration for insulting our intelligence with this messaging alone guy.
0: Another media question, Joe. I've seen a few different pieces now. I think one was in New York Magazine, one was in Politico, and you've got people wringing their hands about sort of the Ron DeSantis strategy on the mainstream media, which is to, in a lot of ways, shut them out, sort of freeze them out, and when you do interact with them, do so with – a baseline expectation that it's going to be hostile and it's going to be perhaps acrimonious. And these pieces are saying it's dangerous for Republicans to delegitimize the mainstream news media or Republicans will come to regret this kind of approach, this sort of hyper adversarial approach with the press, because if they do that, then the media will not get their story out as much and it will end up hurting the Republicans And I'm just curious what you think of this, because just from where I sit, Joe, it seems like if the coverage were to get even more overtly hostile to Republicans, that, number one, wouldn't be much of a shift from the status quo, especially in these last couple of years in many quarters. But also, if it were to change, it would be a change at least toward honesty and transparency of what these journalists deep down want to do anyway and already do in their own special ways, virtually at every turn, which is to pump up their tribe and to attack the other one. There is something to be said for just being honest and wearing it on your sleeve exactly how much you hate Republicans if you're a mainstream journalist, which is why these warnings, these admonitions to me, uh, don't really hold much water.
2: So to your point, Guy, well, what what many in media are saying is that, OK, you've been in an abusive relationship for a long time where you've been treated very poorly, particularly in the last five years. You should continue that relationship, hoping that maybe things are going to change and everything's going to work out for the best. And we know that's not going to happen. Right. So and, and Ron DeSantis in Florida knows this better than anybody, because what happened with that don't say gay bill, which was not even called don't say gay. It was a parental educational rights, I believe. And every headline you see wouldn't call it by its name. They went with the narrative and the headline that Democratic activists and lawmakers said they should go with. Like seagulls at the beach, they ate it up and spit it out. So, yeah, uh, just – and about it. And thats I agree. I think that, you know, if you're a Republican, there's certain networks that you shouldn't go on because they have a predetermined narrative that they are going to ambush and destroy you no matter what you say, even if the facts are on your side. So, yes, stay away from places that aren't going to give you a fair shake. I think that's reasonable,
0: actually. Unless you have your own ambush plan. You want to go in and just steamroll them with whatever you want to say, and that's going to be your goal. I get it. And I think under a different circumstance, if reality were different... These warnings would make more sense to me. But reality is what it is. And you're right. DeSantis himself has been the target of this more than virtually anyone in the country, certainly in the last couple of years, certainly during this Biden administration and dating back throughout the pandemic. Trump up there as well, obviously, in terms of the hostility. But to your example on the so-called don't say gay bill, I interviewed DeSantis at length Shortly after he signed it into law and we had a back and forth, I disagreed with elements of the bill. We had a civilized, serious conversation about some of those points. I agreed with him on his central defenses of the bill, but the media was just too lazy or biased to have any nuance. They just took the left wing activist line and echoed it far and wide as much as they could. The Democrats in the state took the lead. They just sort of feed off of each other and they were banging the drums and chanting, we say gay and all of this stuff. And it didn't really apply to what was in the legislation itself. Now that's the law and polling has shown that it's actually quite popular. And so this is where, and I talked about this with Governor Christie yesterday, I think the Democrat media left wing alliance actually hurts them. Because they end up in such a deep bubble where they only hear the echo chamber voices, they've lost touch with how most people actually think, and they end up inflicting political harm on themselves because of the disconnect that is constantly fueled and reinforced by this sort of mutual assistance society that happens, again, in a very insular context.
2: Guy, my favorite stat of all time uh, happened after the 2016 election. I was on with Brett Baier, and he says, well, why didn't anybody see this victory from Donald Trump coming? And my my basic premise was, well, because they don't leave New York and Washington, where Republicans tend to poll you know, in Manhattan and Washington, D.C., in, in the single digits you know, when it comes to the vote count uh, in, in presidential elections. And they didn't get out to Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. They never saw this coming, nor did Hillary Clinton, for that matter. But then the stat of all stats is this. The Hill did an analysis of newspaper endorsements, right? We strongly endorse this candidate for president. 57 of 59 went to Hillary Clinton, and that got her a concession speech and a set of steak knives. All right. So in other words, all these papers are telling you how to think and how you should vote, and it didn't matter anyway. So- Again, if I'm DeSantis, I would never sit down with the editorial board of The New York Times because I know I'm not getting a fair shake, and I can also look at the fact that they haven't endorsed a Republican presidential candidate since 1956, and The Washington Post has never endorsed a Republican presidential candidate, so I wouldn't sit down with them either. So it's not boycotting and it's not being a coward. I would just go to places where I think the reporter is going to be fair. I'll give you an example like Jonathan Swan of Axios. I think he's a good reporter. I work with him at the Hill, and I think he asks tough, fair questions. So just go where you think you're going to get a fair shake. Take the tough questions, but avoid the places where well, you know the narrative is predetermined.
0: And it's sort of interesting how the onus, based on the premise of this critique, the onus is on the Republican to do what the media figures want. There's no suggestion that maybe the media ought to consider why their credibility is zero and why this is an appealing strategy for Republicans and perhaps actually embrace the meaning of impartiality or fairness or balance in treatment of Republicans or coverage of Republicans. No, the, the changes don't have to happen within the media, which is you know, bleeding viewers, bleeding readers, credibility at all time lows in polling. But there's no suggestion really of introspection or taking a different approach to the job on their part. It's like scolding and tisking Republicans for surveying reality and adjusting their. Decisions and behavior accordingly I I think that's rather telling By the way, yes, Hillary Clinton did concede the election In 2016, but then spent the next Four years suggesting openly Multiple times that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president And we didn't see a bunch of freak out over that Interestingly and tellingly Joe Concha, let me take a quick break When we come back, I want to follow up with a related Issue that's next on the Guy Benson Show
3: Guy Benson will be Right back
0: It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Joe Concha is with us. Last question, Joe, and it comes back to this question of media bubble. There's a journalist named David Zwieg who's been quite good and skeptical and curious on the issue of COVID restrictions over the last couple of years, on school closures and things like that. And he tweeted yesterday, he called it a study in media framing, and he screen-grabbed a bunch of headlines from the mainstream press from the New York Times and Politico and CNN about this agonizing weight of parents who were desperate to vaccinate their very young children, five and under, against COVID. And this was the narrative that they built. All these parents out there who just were chomping at the bit, who were clamoring for pediatric vaccines for their young children against COVID. That was what they built up, just awaiting the authorization from the government. And then it finally came... And Zwig notes that as of last week, only 2.8 percent, less than 3 percent of children under five in the United States had received at least one shot of the covid vaccine. So you would think reading these stories and listening to what journalists were saying was like the heartbeat of America with their finger on the pulse. You would think that there was just this deluge coming. And then the moment arrived. And 97 percent of those kids are still unvaccinated, which I think is a completely defensible decision based on the data, because kids, thank God, have been fine during covid overwhelmingly, basically immune naturally by virtue of being kids. But that's not what we heard from the press for the most part. And then the expectation built by stories that they wrote versus the reality that then transpired is that just couldn't be farther apart.
2: The ultimate disconnect right and as you know guy i have two young kids uh kindergarten second grade and they both got vaccinated and they have had COVID. let's see my 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 daughter's had it three times and my son has had it twice uh and both times uh everything was perfectly fine uh the, the difference is the first time they got it uh was before the vaccine was available and then the second time they got it, it was after they had taken the vaccine and uh both times there was zero impact on their health you know in other words we, we we tested them only because they spiked a fever for a couple of hours, so my wife's a doctor, so she's like, well, let me be sure everything's okay, and then the, the, the test came back positive. More and more parents now, uh, if, parents, if they're in that situation, may test their kids and then not tell anybody <laughs> because it doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. You're going to get it no matter what, and particularly during the summer when you're outside, it's not going to. Go anywhere. But yeah, totally. look, here, here, yeah, here's the ultimate test. OK, not the ultimate because we already know the answer The the, the new president of CNN came in a couple months ago and said, I'm going to bring CNN back to the middle. We're going to do journalism the way we used to. We're going to take all the partisan opinion out and get back to good old reporting. Have you seen one change really with CNN? Because I haven't. It's the same network. And now I hear Stephen Colbert and Morning Joe are being wooed to come over. So it's all BS. I mean, when you hear like, we're going to try to be objective. No, you're not. Just say who you are, own it, and go with it. And then that's, uh, we don't even get that. Well, I
0: I have not noticed a change at CNN, but even if there were a big one, I also would not have noticed because I really just don't watch them ever. But I, I think just to put a final period on this paragraph and this COVID example that we were giving, I'm sure there were parents out there who could not wait. They were clamoring to vaccinate their young children against COVID. And that's fine. That's their choice for their kids in consultation with their doctor. Totally fine. But what the media was sort of suggesting to the public was this was a sweeping desire across the country. And everyone was so frustrated that the authorization took so long. And then when finally it arrived, you'd imagine there was all this pent-up demand from these people desperate to vaccinate their three-year-old or whatever – And the number is 97% of those kids haven't gotten vaccinated. Just the disconnect is dramatic. It is a yawning, gaping canyon, often, as usual, between what is hyped up in the press and what they think is important and what they think people want and believe versus the reality of it out in the country. And as long as that gap keeps growing, the media can complain about their... Falling approval ratings and trust numbers, and they can dismiss it. They can point fingers. They can blame storm at everyone else. But it is going to continue. It is going to get worse for them before it gets better. And on your CNN point, I'm still not seeing much movement in that direction. Uh, we'll see if it becomes maybe a financial reality for them to do so at some point, but not yet. The tribe is dug in right now, and it's going to take some uprooting to change any of that, it seems. Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill, joining us here on The Guy Benson Show. Joe, appreciate it. Thank you.
3: Happy Thursday, sir. Doctor to you soon.
0: You too. We'll take a break and be right back. Stay with us.
3: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: As we chug along toward the end of the program, not quite there yet. And in fact, I want you to hear this. Earlier in the show, Sarah Huckabee Sanders joined us here for the first time, former White House press secretary, of course, and she is the Republican nominee for governor in Arkansas, her home state. We caught up on a host of issues, including her race, including national politics. Here's a little bit of my back and forth with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. How often do you talk to your dad about the campaign? How much will you lean on him if you're governor for advice? And where do you think maybe things are similar enough that he could be a resource for you?
1: Yeah, I try to get as uh, much free advice as I can from my dad. I tell him all the time that he's the best governor that our state has ever seen. And frankly, one of the best governors our country has ever seen. And I look forward to at least taking the title of best governor of Arkansas away from him. (laughs) He's uh, he laughs, but is very supportive in that effort. And uh, certainly he and my mom are my my two biggest cheerleaders and biggest sources of encouragement um, and are a phenomenal resource to be able to lean on. You know, the state makeup was very different when my dad came into office when he was first, Elected as the lieutenant governor, he was only the fourth Republican elected statewide in 150 years. And now uh, Arkansas has become very much a red state, very conservative state. And the makeup of the legislature is very different. He had Four out of 35 senators were Republicans when he was governor, and 11 out of 100 House members. And now Republicans have super majorities in both. So while the environment is better for a Republican, I think the expectations are bigger as well. Um, He had to fight for every single movement. To me, that means we have a lot of opportunity to do really transformative things for our state. And the expectations are high for us to, yeah. to deliver. And I look forward to, to meeting those and hopefully even excelling the expectations that exist out there.
0: Well, look, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of expectation, as you said. Uh, and that's all true. Um, I also think that there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of power and influence that any governor has. And with that comes attention from the press Criticism, I think women, conservative women in politics often have a target on their back for you know a lot of uh, criticism and attacks from the left, from the media, sort of often the same thing. As you think about the responsibility, the huge amount of responsibility that you would have if you win this election in November, are there Republican governors around the country who already have the job in this era, in this day and age, That you talk to on any sort of a regular basis, just to sort of give you some pointers, not just on the you know election front, but as you start to think about what your governing approach would look like, are there governors in particular that you especially admire or lean on or talk to?
1: Yeah, certainly. And outside of my dad, you know, there are a lot of governors that are doing really great things at the state level. In fact, I think if Uh, one of the most positive things that has come out of the last couple of years is people have been awakened to the impact that their governors have and are paying much closer attention to who are serving in those positions and in those roles um, and engaging in politics in a much bigger way because of it. And we've seen our conservative governors step up around the country, I think, and be the leaders that we need to push back against an out of control radical left Washington. Um, And I say, uh, I try to talk to and steal ideas from as many as I can because they're doing remarkable things. I think that's one of the bonuses of governors that's very different than what you'll see in Washington. Washington so often is completely polarized to the point that it becomes paralyzed and they have no ability to make or impact change, but in the states and on the state level, You're seeing a very different story, and there's a much greater sense, I think, too, of camaraderie among governors, willing to share good ideas and best practices of things that are working. Uh, Governor Reynolds in Iowa, I have known for a long time, have a great relationship and a great amount of respect for her. Um, Got a lot of great governors surrounding Arkansas, Governor Parson in Missouri, Governor Lee in Tennessee, Um, that we'll have to work closely to do some things um, that will go across state lines and have good impact for both states. But at the end of the day, we've got 36 governor's races taking place this year alone. And I think conservatives are going to come out the big winner uh, in November. And we'll see a lot of governors working closely together over the next several years, trying to make sure that certainly, again, we protect against That radical left mandate coming out of Washington, but also focusing on moving our states forward. Fighting back against bad ideas is only half the battle. We also have to focus and lead with heart and vision on how we're going to take our states to the next level. And I think that sense of camaraderie among conservative governors will never be higher than it is after November.
0: That's at the state level. At the federal level, there's all sorts of chatter, of course, looking past even November. To the next election, which is what so many people do in the media, we're guilty of it here, no doubt, but it's not like we're at a loss for news hooks or we're inventing stuff. It's very much an active conversation right now. Your former boss. President Trump talking about heavily hinting that he is going to run again for the presidency in 2024. Some people love that idea. Some people do not on the Republican side. feel like maybe it's time for someone else. Uh, Do you have a view on whether he should run again Uh, and, and maybe any view on whether if he decides to run, should he announce before the midterms or maybe wait till after? Have you thought about that much?
1: You know, I think whether a person runs for office is a very personal decision, Um, and having gone through the decision-making process, uh, both to decide whether I'll throw my hat in the ring, but also being part of conversations with my uh, immediate family when my dad was going through that process it's very personal. And I think that the only people who can make that decision are, you know, that individual and their family. And I I think we have a lot of people that are going through that right now. The good news is I think President Trump has an incredible story to tell and a great record to run on, which is different than when he launched and ran the very first time in 2016. And in comparison to the completely failed Biden administration, I think that matchup and uh, certainly bodes well for the president, but it's a personal decision and I'll stay out of the way and let him make it. I learned a long time ago that's the best way uh, to survive is, you know, be there when the decision is made, but uh, certainly has a remarkable story to tell if he decides to throw his hat in the ring again.
0: On the other side of the aisle, the sitting president, Joe Biden, I mean, the knives are out for him. Among Democrats, the polls are terrible. It seems like there's an overwhelming desire for him to move on and not seek reelection. Do you think that, you know, he survives this or is is he a one term or one way or another?
1: Uh, I I think he he definitely, for the the sake of the country, I hope that he's a one term president.
0: My complete interview with Sarah Sanders available online at GuyBensonShow.com. There's the podcast every day, the entire show on demand. It's always free. That's an option guybensonshow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, well, last night was fun. I was on Gutfeld, as I told you, and it was pretty raucous, as it tends to be over there. Some highlights when we come back.
3: For the full interview and more, go to guybensonshow.com. Friday Eve...
0: It's the home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. Catch me tonight on Kennedy coming up in the 7 o'clock hour, FBN. I'm on Outnumbered tomorrow at noon in the middle seat on the couch. And I might be joining Shannon Bream tonight in the midnight hour. We are just busy while we're up here in New York. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here. Podcast is always free. Well, as advertised on yesterday's program, I was a guest on the panel on Gutfeld. 11 p.m. last night, I tweeted a couple of clips. I wanted to share them with you if you missed it. It was fun. Greg was hosting. He had his typical Cat and Tyrus duo off to his right. Then seated to his left was Dean Cain, the actor who played Superman. There was a lot about his bio that I didn't know until his intro. With Greg listing some of the things that he's done in his life. And on top of it all, he's a law enforcement officer. Anyway, super nice guy. He was very complimentary. It's always weird when someone prominent, who you feel like is definitely much more famous than you are, knows who you are or is familiar with your work. It's just sort of disorienting, but I guess cool. So that was where Dean Kane was. And then I had the last seat. And right out of the gate, I had the intro, I believe, you never know what Greg's going to say about you. And they keep it a secret until he is literally introducing you with the whole studio audience sitting there and clapping. And I think the intro was that my previous job before working at Fox was a mannequin for J. Crew, which is, you know, fact check, kind of close to true. In fact, I thought about it in the moment, I believe last night on the show, Literally every single article of clothing I was wearing was from J. Crew, so he wasn't wrong. And then he had given me a hard time last time I was on the program about a beard I had grown out, just to make the point that I could grow one, because usually he mocks me because I look too young. So I grew a beard. He didn't like it. And then when we started chatting in our first topic, this is what he said in Cut 17. And welcome to the show, by the way. I'm glad you shaved your beard. (laughs) You asked me to, so yes, it's your show, so it's fine. It was was leaving a rash, so. (laughs) By the way, I bet you the White House. (laughs) I had to stop myself because it sunk in what he said, which was part of an ongoing joke between the two of us, and that was funny. So he got me. He got me, but I had my revenge. I waited several segments because it's a dish best served cold. He didn't know that it was coming, but we were talking about a story involving the rapper Lil Wayne. And I guess Lil Wayne's life had been saved years ago when he was a kid by a police officer, a white police officer. Lil Wayne had shot himself. He was bleeding out, and this officer willed him back to life and saved his life, and that officer just recently died, and Lil Wayne put out a beautiful tribute to him on social media, and during all the height of the anti-cop stuff a few years ago, Lil Wayne was outspoken, saying, no, I have not experienced racism. Let me tell you about what a white cop did for me. He really went against the grain, which I think is admirable. So this tribute to the now-deceased officer was the subject of a conversation on Greg's show, a whole segment, as a matter of fact, and it was a little bit more serious and earnest than the topics usually are on that show. It did not invite very much comedy. So they had gone all the way around the horn with everyone making nice comments and sort of warm fuzzies. And then Greg comes to me saying, Guy, I know you're a hardcore rap fan and you're very angry at Lil Wayne for doing this and sort of going against brand. And so I had to make a decision whether or not to roll with it, and I decided to roll with it and then get an extra shot in because previously in the segment, Greg had said he himself is also a rapper. His rap persona is Little Greg, which got a laugh. Here is my response to Greg's sort of challenge here in Cut 18. I have done nothing but boo myself horse at every Lil Wayne concert I've attended since he made this announcement. Yes. It's just outrageous, and I won't stand for it. Also, did you say your rap name is Little Greg? Yes, I know. it's redundant. Is the little necessary? <laughs> Seems superfluous. Got him. Yes. You know what? Sometimes when I'm about to trust you, then you stab me in the back. And then I said, yeah, stab down. He's a short man. He's a short king, Greg Gottfeld. He's four foot seven. People don't know that about him. He's going to kill me. Next time I'm on the show, he's going to kill me because I know he listens to this show religiously, I'm sure, on the podcast at guybensonshow.com. And then we got to another topic at the end of the show. And this was hilarious because the topic is about, and it's sort of like content warning here for little kids, they sent us the rundown. The final topic is about a bomb scare that turned out to just be a sex toy. And you can look up the details if you want to. But right before we came back from commercial for the segment, the producer's like, hey, let's try to keep this PG-13. Let's not make this an R-rated segment. I'm like, excuse me. This is the topic that you gave us. You know what the subject matter is, and now you're like, oh, last minute. Keep it clean, guys. So everyone was making their jokes. Greg came to me. In the moment, I thought of a one-liner. Seemed to go over pretty well. Earmuffs, cut 19. It's better to mistake a sex toy for a bomb than mistaking a bomb for a sex toy. Right. I think that is going to be the quote that I will be remembered by. It's a good one. They both cause different kinds of explosions. <laughs> Can I say that?
4: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can exit
0: on that line, my friend. I'm done. I was worried I might get escorted off the premises. But on Gutfeld, you can get away with some stuff, I guess. Last but not least, there was a whole segment about Chris Cuomo. We haven't talked about this on the show yet. Chris Cuomo is making a return to the news. He is going to be on a station called News Nation. I actually know a few people over there. I wish them all well. Their whole premise was we are going to do just the news. Sort of what cable news used to be years ago before it became all political and, you know, competing political talking points or whatever. They were nostalgic for an older school version of cable news, and they were going to do it. And I actually think that there's probably a market for that, you would think. And they've made some good hires, but I guess maybe things aren't going the way they were hoping because they are now hiring Chris Cuomo to have a show over there. And he is whatever you think of him, he is not that right he is not Mr. Straight down the middle news. His whole thing is sort of personality and controversy and that kind of thing, and of course, the various scandals and criticisms of him on some personal stuff, but then journalistic ethics, all of the things that got him ultimately booted over at c n n and he gave an interview Cuomo did on News Nation. Where he made it sound like it was his choice not to return to one of the bigger players in the news universe. Like he's like, I just didn't feel like I could be a fit in one of the bigger players because we need an insurrection media. And I wanted to go somewhere, you know, smaller, basically, where I could make more of a difference and help people. I guess this sounded good in his head. Like this was a big choice he was selflessly making as opposed to this is the person who has offered me a job and this is the outlet where I actually can get employed again. So I'm taking it. So people were dunking on him. Kat made the point that it was totally nonsensical and you could just read so transparently through this self-serving spin that he was offering out there. And then Greg came around to me on this issue about how he's sort of casting himself as the little guy, the insurgent news media speaking truth to power. And I just sort of took it from there and couldn't resist at the very end. Cut 20. Son and brother of a governor is the ultimate underdog tale, right? That's uh, the Chris Cuomo story. You're the one person in America clamoring for his comeback. I was from the beginning. It's you. Yes, I was behind this from the beginning. I actually did a disagree. whole
1: monologue begging CNN to not fire him. I did.
0: I did. You want him and as now a he's, guest. Yes, I want oh. him here, at Fox, on The Five. Oh, no, no, this, <laughs> this network is far too big for his taste, yes. as he tells yeah. us. But I actually disagree. I take him at his word that he likes working at a small network because he seemed to enjoy it at CNN. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boom. Roasted. Mic drop. Good luck, Chris. That's it for us. Kennedy tonight, Shannon Bream, the evil Shannon Bream, as Greg calls her, which is hilarious, in the midnight hour, I think, and then tomorrow, outnumbered at noon on Fox News Channel. Lots of TV ahead, and of course, the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place, right here on the radio. We will talk to you then.